Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm excited to have Wade Eyerly on the show today. Wade is the founder and CEO of Degree Insurance, where he works with colleges and students to ensure that a student's investment in higher education pays off. Wade believes that insurance can give students the confidence they need to enroll and the grit necessary to persist through graduation. In this episode, we're going to talk about the potential role for insurance in the world of higher education and what options are out there. Yes, you heard that right. Insurance, just like your home or auto insurance, but for college. We'll explain. Wade, I'm so pleased to have you with me today to talk about this. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be here. Great. So first, what the heck is college insurance? So the easiest way to think about this is that higher education, your college degree, is the largest uninsured investment you will ever make, right? There's just no other place in your life where you would tell somebody that you love that they should borrow 10 or 15 or 20 times their net worth, make a single investment with it, and then just kind of hope that it works. And it's, it's toxic in all the wrong ways, right? The kind of debt you borrow is it's mob money, right? It's non-dischargeable, right? You're not getting rid of it in a bankruptcy. It's going to follow you till you die. And there's enough ego in it where like, oh, you're making a bet on you, right? So it's the first legal contract most people ever sign at 18 years old where they put their name to, right? They take out this debt and they are making a bet on themselves, right? They're making an investment in their future. And it's an investment that works really well. It pays off really consistently, right? But you're not average. Any individual isn't. And if it doesn't work for you, if you don't see that ROI, there's just no recourse. And the the things that we have learned for what makes, whether it makes your degree work, that determines whether or not it pays off and delivers real ROI are none of the things you think. It's not your grades and where you studied and who you studied under and where you published and all the things that you, you think. Those are all important, but they're marginally so. The thing that determines sort of, did your degree work for you? Did it pay off? is the state of the broader macro economy in the year you graduate, right? If you, if you start college in 2005, your junior year, Apple releases the iPhone, right? And unlocks a tremendous amount of economic potential. Your senior year, Lehman Brothers is bust and there's no jobs. Either one of those two things was more predictive of your lifetime earnings and how your college degree was going to perform than anything you did in college. So if that's true, one year in 10 is a down economic cycle, whether it's a pandemic or a housing crisis or a 9-11 or you know, whatever it is, we kind of know that one year in 10 is just not a great year. If that's true, then higher ed becomes a roulette wheel where nine out of 10 spaces pay off. So as a society, as an economy, it makes sense to say, yes, borrow money, go spin a roulette wheel with a 90% payoff. We should all do that. We, I was really drawn to your work in this space, because for a long time, I have been hearing people say, college is too expensive. And then as an economist, I sit back and I say, okay, but I know that on average, it pays off, right? So it's actually a positive ROI. And it pushed me to think, what's next? If we can't say it's too expensive, what is the problem that we're really talking about? And I think you describe it quite well. And it's that college, it's an investment, but it's actually a risky investment. And that doesn't work for a lot of people. Yeah. And it, it gets riskier because it takes 21 years to pay back your loans, right? Now at that roulette wheel I was describing, right? If it lands on black and doesn't pay off for you, right? That family is set back a generation. 21 years, you have kids, right? So 21 years from the day you take out your loans, your daughter might very well be looking at you saying, Hey, I got into state. Can you co-sign on mine? 
And you're sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm still paying off my own. It didn't work, you know? So that's what's really, I think, new in the last 10 or 15 years is we've seen, you know, tuition and cost of attending college inflate the way it has, is that it now is a multi-generational impact. Used to be, you could try college and in the event it didn't work for you, you graduate in the wrong year, like, like okay, you overcome it a couple of years into your career and you just paid it off and it was fine. That's where it gets real dangerous. Yeah, I think that's an important insight. So I'll just stop you there just to say that what has changed in the past couple decades in, in higher ed is not that college is no longer worth it, but that the risk has become much larger. So this is a new problem to solve. Yeah, and we have new tools to solve it with, right? 20 years ago, we didn't have the data. It was very granular where we could see what a student's going to make when they graduate by major, by school. So we spent the last four years just collecting that, building that longitudinal data set. So I know not just what they're going to make, but what the growth rate is for a specific major or a specific part of the country, right? Specific institution. So I know why you need that data, Wade, because I understand the product that your company has. But explain more broadly what it is that your company and this emerging industry is doing for students. Yeah. So we basically said, look, your house, your car, your cell phone all have insurance. Borrowing $100,000 to go to college and having no insurance on it doesn't make any sense. And like we described, it's a reliable bet. 90% of the time it's going to work, right? It makes a lot of sense. And so just like most homes won't burn down, it makes it really inexpensive to get homeowner's insurance that would rebuild your home in the event that it did. Insurance is the kind of thing you hope you never have to make a claim, right? You hope, you hope it never burns down. You hope, you hope it works for you, right? And so you want very, very reliable bets, if you will. What we do is we, we basically sell a product to a college. We can sell it to a state, but, but generally the way we think about it is selling it to a college. And we say, look, for a one-time cost, we're going to guarantee that your you know, physics majors make 55 grand a year or your you know, English majors make 42 and your business majors make 38 or sort of whatever it is for that institution, whatever their median exit salaries are really across the next five years. And then for and then students with that information can change their major as often as they want, just like, I mean, you're figuring out who you are in college. And when they graduate then, though, it locks their coverage. So, all right, you were an English major, you had 42,000 a year in coverage or whatever it was. And then for five years, you're going to send us your tax returns. It's objective. It's verifiable. It's a third-party document. You know what it is. We know what it is. There's not a lot of claims adjudication to be like, well, you didn't find the right kind of job. No, it's just, what did you earn? And if you didn't earn what we promised you, we're going to cut you a check and catch you up. So you can't not earn whatever we, we guaranteed. That, I think, is really important because, you know, in the event that you graduate in the wrong year and college doesn't work for you, the wealthy already self-insure, right? Graduate enrollments spike in a down economy. You spin the wheel again. You borrow more money, you spin the wheel again. Right. You graduate in a recession, you jump right back into grad school so you can try again. Yep. You hide from the economy in a socially acceptable way for a couple of years and do it again. <laughs> if you're an underrepresented minority, first-generation American, first-generation student, Pell eligible, right? Otherwise poor, you often don't have that chance. So you graduated at the wrong time through no fault of your own. You did everything right. And you anchor your market rate now at a low point. And the economy rebounds, but your career goes back to a 3% annual wage increase, right? It's not uncommon that somebody graduating in the wrong year, the person that is hired a year after them comes in at a higher salary than they have with a year's experience and their annual wage increase, right? Because the economy's rebounded. So what we do is give people a chance to reset, whether that means go to graduate school, whether that means just pay off their debt, whether it means pay off the car loan they had to take out that's at a higher interest rate than their student loan or whatever. We're not prescriptive with it, but it gives you a chance to reset. Take some of the risk out of attending higher ed with a goal of encouraging you know, more students to enroll right? Who could do well. And importantly, helping you persist through to graduation. Wait, I want to double back on something that you just said. You were talking about how this insurance for college makes sense because 
college is a quality product. And I think that's really important because I sense in the space of higher ed that there's a lot of skepticism about any kind of third party, especially for-profit industries that pop up around education. And so I think when people hear about insurance, they might be skeptical off the bat that this is somehow a scam or it's somehow going to leave them worse off than they would have been otherwise. So I really appreciate you making the point that the only reason this works is because on average, college works. Yeah, college works so well. If a college degree were a stock in the stock market, right, the annual return is 17%. It outperforms the market by 2x, and it would be the most consistent performer in history. College is a great place. Borrow money and get a degree. That makes sense. That dynamic is a good one, right? But there's some risk, right? If the market's down when you graduate, like when you have to sell effectively and use that stock analogy, right? Like it doesn't work for you. That's where you want a protection. And insurance, well, insurance should work that way. Insurance is designed to protect you when you fall, right? If, if you're walking a tightrope, it's, it's the safety net that catches you. That's what insurance is supposed to do. And you don't feel like you're made poorer because you have homeowner's insurance. You're enabled that you can feel confident buying a house, borrowing a ton of money, because if it burnt down, you could rebuild it. You don't lose that. That's the same thing that happens here. I, I've been referring to this generation as the least confident generation in American history. So the students enrolling now were old enough to remember the Great Recession and the fear and the job loss and all of that. When it's their turn now to go to college, we get the pandemic, the likes of which we haven't seen in 100 years. And higher ed didn't do itself any favors spending the last 25 years telling everybody that a degree delivered online should come with an asterisk, right? So now they don't know, like, is there going to be a job when I graduate? Are employers going to respect my degree? Is it going to count the same? And it's a marshmallow test, right? The debt is immediate. The payoff is delayed. So you know, you're, you're a year and a half in, you're already 10 grand in debt. Does it make sense to keep doing it? Or should I, to put it in economic terms, right? Should I just eat the sunk cost and move on? In America right now, the thing people don't seem to know is that 40% of students who start college this year won't finish. Four in 10, which means we are dangerously close to higher ed making more families poorer than wealthy in the United States. Right. That's a huge concern. So it's not that it doesn't work. It's that dropping out hurts you, right? And so we have for a long time said that, you know, getting a college degree, that's the path to the American dream, right? It's false. It's not true, right? Attending college will not make you wealthier. Graduating college will. And it's, it's a subtle but really, really important difference, right? I feel convinced, you know, that, that this is conceptually really solid. So what does the space look like on the ground? Because you talked a bit about your specific product, which is essentially guaranteeing a certain level of salary by major. And that's a product that is sold to institutions. So it's not like a student can walk out and go to your store and, and buy the insurance, right? There's no green gecko of college insurance quite yet. But what does it look like for, for students or parents of students who are, who are thinking about going to college, who feel attracted to this idea? What kind of things can they find to protect themselves? Yeah, so we, we sell it to colleges because colleges, frankly, make money on it, right? They, by providing it, more students enroll and more students get all the way through to graduation. They better meet their mission. But a student who stays, right, gives the university more revenue, right? So it's a win for the institution. So if I'm a parent, I want to look for institutions that are offering that. But there are some other products. They do different things. They're usually ensuring different parts of the, of the process. So you have things like a company called Ardeo that does LRAP, Loan Repayment Assistance Program. Spun out of Yale Law School, it's, it's exclusively used by private colleges, and often it's law schools that do it. But what they do is they guarantee that if you, can't make, if you don't earn enough, they'll help you pay your loan. 
right? So it's it's tied directly back to whatever amount was you borrowed and making sure you don't fall behind on your loan. And tied directly to this to the space that people seem to be the most anxious when it comes to higher education right now, which is their ability to pay back debt. Yeah, it's pay, paying back the loan, right? And, and again, we, we sort of said this earlier, we might have glossed over it quickly, but if you graduate, you can service your loans, right? The, the majority of people who default on their student loans borrowed less than 10 grand, but didn't graduate. They were, they were just made poorer for having attended, right? And so that's who can't pay it back, right? And now nobody likes paying back their student loans, right? Like, like any debt, you'd rather it wasn't there. But, but just because you complain about it doesn't mean that you can't service those loans, right? You're still better off, the vast majority. Right. So we've got your model, which is direct to schools, and then Ardeo, which is offering a similar product, but really guaranteeing student loan repayment affordability. And they sell it. So the school is sort of an intermediary. Like the, a school will sign up with them, and then the individual buys it through the school or signs up for it through the school, I think, I think is how that works. There are some other programs. There's income share agreements where instead of borrowing money up front, someone else finances your education, and then you give them a percentage of your future earnings, right? And that's a form of insurance, because if you don't earn enough, then you don't have to pay. They, they don't take that percentage. Right. I like to say you're, you're essentially paying back in proportion to what the degree pays to you with an income share agreement. Yeah. And there are entire ecosystems built around that. So Vimo does, that, does a lot of that. And, and ostensibly, an ISA can help align incentives and get, give the school some skin in the game if they were offering them. In practice, what happens is third-party financiers do it, right? And the kind of, that piece ends up breaking, but it still means you have to come up with less money up front. There are other schools like Lambda School that will, the entire school is financed this way because they're making a bet on a specific skill set. So I think they are, I could be wrong here, but I think they're actually degree granting now. But you can get a degree in computer science and just pay for it after the fact, right? So you can just kind of sign up and go. Some places will give you a sort of, they call it a tuition guarantee. So insurance is, is, is like a guarantee in lots of ways. But tuition guarantee is usually we agree not to raise tuition on you while you're in school. And that's good and that's important. Frankly, every school should do that. That's an easy one because the school controls it. And to say, we've sold you something that's going to take four years for you to buy, at least and five normally now. And it's going to be the same price on year four as it is on year one. That's really all it does. But... It's unfortunately not uncommon for you to start at a school at 18 grand a year and graduate paying 22 grand a year. You know, they just, they just keep moving the price up. And you're two years in, you don't have really have an option of being like, well, never mind, I'm out now. It costs too much, right? And so, so they know they can raise the tuition and it's kind of a... You're stuck. Yeah, I think of it as dirty pool. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> so the tuition guarantee is an easy one. I know like University of Phoenix, large online has that. I wouldn't be surprised if Western Governors does. Mitch Daniels at Purdue has done a really good job at holding their big, you know, public institution, like holding their tuition under $10,000 for the last 10 years. Those are other sorts of forms of insurance that are in the space. So it sounds like, and this is kind of my understanding, but I was, I was going to ask your expertise on it. It sounds like everything that currently exists, exists at a school level. So there are really no direct to consumer insurance products quite yet for higher education. Yeah, there's a good reason for that. So a group policy, when I sell a policy to a school and I say, hey, we're going to cover your incoming freshman class, I don't have to worry about the fact that mm. Susie's going to change her major four times and end up somewhere different. I don't have to worry about the fact that as an Hispanic female, she might make 88 cents on the dollar to a white male or you know, whatever, whatever the studies are telling us now, right? All that individualized risk goes away because of what I know is the University of Utah is going to graduate 33 English majors and 150 business majors, you know, or whatever it is. And so the math works cleaner 
and washes out all of the individuality by doing the group. And so I think a lot of insurance in this space is going to continue to be built that way, in large part because I would never sell a product that I had to say, well, because of your family background, ethnicity, you know, your first gen status, whatever it is, it's more expensive and you're going to get less coverage, right? Even though that might be the reality in America today is that like, it's a, it's a bigger risk for you. So essentially you're underwriting a population of yes. students rather than individuals. And that's, it's much, it's a safer bet, right? So from an insurance standpoint, that's a, it's, there's less risk involved. It makes the products less expensive and you avoid all of the unsavory stuff that does come in. And the reason people don't like insurance, right? There's two reasons. Unsavory stuff going in and people denying claims going out, right? The interesting thing for sort of what we do, right, is as soon as the university buys this, we have perfect incentive alignment with the student to help them out earn our coverage. How is it that we don't pay you? You earn more than we promised, right? So this is a, a true data point that we learned along the way. But if you tell me you're a computer science major and I say, great, I'm gonna, you're going to make you know, $50,000 a year when you graduate. I can also tell you along the way, hey, did you know that a CS major who can put JavaScript on their resume makes 10 grand a year more than one without? Why do I know that? Because it's, I have the incentive to find that out and to tell you, because if you then go take JavaScript, right, you're, gonna, you're that much more likely to out earn my coverage. I don't end up having to pay you. And you had a better outcome. But we can do that with budgets and dollars and data that your well-meaning career services officer probably can't, right? They don't have that same budget because they don't have money at risk from it. Something that was often raised when I would talk about this issue before it was really in practice, people would say, well, this will, something like that would never work because if you insure people's income, for example, and say, okay, whether you work or not, you're going to have an income of $56,000 a year, why would they work? Or why would some of them work? We know some people have natural ambition, others don't, but wouldn't there be enough people who just choose to throw in the towel that it doesn't make it work financially for you? Yeah, we call that the moral hazard question, right? Like, do we change incentives? There's a couple things that protect against that. First, we're covering you after you graduate. If you want to sit on your couch and play Xbox, there is no better time for that behavior to show up than in college, right? Four out of 10 kids aren't going to finish. Guess who's in that group, right? The people who are, are wired to, to do that, right? And so that's okay. So, so you've already, now you've made it through a gauntlet to enter a career. And we're going to cover you for five years. We cover that whole period. So we don't know what we're going to have to owe you until the end of the five-year period. If I was giving you a monthly check, it might very well change your incentives. Even a check every January, right? You're like, okay, well, I, I go work at Applebee's and I'll get a check in January and that's fine. Five years is far enough out that you, that you behave in a normal way, right? You got to figure out how to live. You got to make it work. So you're going to get a check when it really failed you because you really had to try. Five years is a long time to sit on your hands waiting for a check. And people tend to cheat in the short term. It's an unfortunately macabre example. But we learned some of this from life insurance, right? Which is what makes it a macabre. Your life insurance policy likely, likely covers you in the case of suicide, as long as it didn't happen in the first two years of the policy. In the first two years, again, short term, you could have been planning something, whatever. If it happens outside of that, that was your natural cause of death. Like that's what happened, right? And so, so you do have coverage. Same thing here. When you, when you put that delay in there, now it's real behavior, right? If it didn't work, it really didn't work. And, uh, and so, so those, those two things help. And then there's a third piece given what we do. What we're covering is the ROI on your degree, right? Like, did it work? And you aren't going from zero. There's something you would have earned as an 18-year-old with a high school diploma, you know, and I don't know if it's 11 bucks an hour at that same Applebee's I was talking about earlier or whatever it is, right? But what we're ensuring is the difference between that and the 42 grand a year or whatever we had guaranteed you. 
not between zero and that. So it's not unemployment insurance. Now you might not, if you can't get a job, right? You're going to max out your coverage, but your coverage again, isn't zero to 42. Right. So all, all three of those things are how we kind of control for that. I want to talk still about this aspect of the, how the industry has evolved to this being a product that's offered at the institution level. Something I like about that is actually, you know, I'm, I'm concerned and consumer advocates are concerned about the complexity of these sort of contracts and the ability of individual consumers to really navigate what they're signing themselves up for. And it's something I'm concerned about, probably not as much as consumer advocates are, but I actually really like that institutions are the ones vetting services like yours, because I think it kind of puts a more capable party in, in charge of having to determine whether or not the game that these outside providers is, are providing is, is fair. So at 18 years old, you're not yet financially literate. That's why you're going to college, right? Like these are skills you're trying to develop. And frankly, at 18, the difference between $14,000 a year and $42,000 a year is cognitively zero. They're both, quote, a lot, right? Like they're just bucketed, bucketed in more money than I've seen. The most expensive thing you've ever bought is a bicycle or a cell phone, right? Like it's just, it's a lot of money. And so the numbers look the same. And so it's an easy place for institutions to take advantage of that, right? And so you see a lot of that. It's also the only debt you ever take out where you don't talk about the payment, right? Your credit card, you go, you go to buy a car and be like, what payment can you afford, right? And they don't, now it's almost like they don't want to tell you what the car costs. They want to tell you what the payment right. is, right? <laughs> and, and that's true with, you know, 99% of the debt you'll ever take out is about the payment. Student loans, it's about the lump sum. And in fact, there was a survey presented at an education finance summit I went to. They did a national survey of kids, of students, not always kids, right? There's a lot of adult learners, but like, and said, how much is your student loan payment going to be when you graduate? And what they found is 80% of respondents gave the same number, no matter how much they borrowed. If they borrowed $100,000 or $1,000, the number they gave was $100 a month. Because it's a payment that they can just conceptualize in their mind, right? And so it's going to be 100 bucks a month. And they've, at 18 years old, have you ever serviced a payment before? No, right? So, so you don't know, you haven't seen it. You're like, I don't know, 100 bucks a month seems about right. And then when it comes <laughs> in different than that, you're like, what is this? You know? So you're right. The complexity is... Is a, is a challenge. The university being the buyer means you have a savvier buyer. But also one of the things I like about what we do is everybody, that there's, this shows up in data as well. College scorecards, states have tools where students can go in and say, what am I going to earn when I graduate, when I study this, et cetera. And they don't get used. Students don't go to them. They get used by people like me and like people like you, Wade. Yes, you and I <laughs> go to all those websites and 18-year-old <laughs> students don't, right? And so what we do is translate it back to them. Hey, here's the safety net. I'm not telling you what you're going to earn when you graduate. I'm telling you, you're going to earn at least this. Here's the floor. And of course you're hopeful. And of course you're going to be, you know, above the mean. And, you know, like when you pull drivers, like 90% of them all think they're above average drivers. It statistically can't be true, right? Same thing with new students, right? Are you going to be an average graduate? No, you're going to, you're going to do great. And you think you're going to make $90,000 a year when you graduate. That's fine. I hope that works for you. But what we can do is lift their up and everybody knows how to return something to Costco. Right. Everybody likes you buy something there and you know you can take it back. Nordstrom, say you buy it, you know you can take it back. There's comfort in that. It translates all the risk down into, well, we have a return policy, right? We do the same thing with your college, with all the data around it. We just went and we did all the work and said, okay, but you know, you, you, can, you can rely on this. There's at least this there for you. And I think that helps because the complexity is wild. And, and frankly, you can take advantage of kids who don't know different. One of the, and I know I'm monologuing a little bit here, but one of the things that happens is price is often expressed as quality as a function, right? Like, so, so something that, that's of higher quality costs more. 
So when you get into two schools and you get into a state school that costs eight grand and you get into an expensive school somewhere else, maybe even a state school out of state or whatever it is, that costs 30 grand. The state school says, hey, it's eight grand. We'd love to have you. The other school has learned that if they inflate their tuition, hey, it's 30 grand, but we will give you a 50% scholarship, right? We're just going to discount it back. Then what, you'll, what happens in your head is you think 30 grand must be better than eight. I must be getting something that's, you know, and if you think about it, the degree can't be worth three times as much. You're learning the same, you're reading the same Peter Drucker book on management. You're reading this, you know, like whatever you studied, the curriculum's not that different. And so it's not three times better, but hey, not only is it higher quality over there, they want me more. They gave me a 50% scholarship. My state school gave me nothing. So the students enroll over there and it, it cost them twice as much than it might have to go to the state. It's a game they're playing because frankly, you're not yet financially literate at 18 and you don't have good cognitive frameworks to make these decisions. Even as an adult, those sort of cognitive games play out, right? We see that with home sales and other stuff. But here it's just so meaningful. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I really love these ideas. And you and I have talked about this before. I mean, I'm really hopeful that this industry will continue to, to grow and have a more prominent role in the higher education landscape. You know, with this podcast, I'm really hoping to speak to students directly and maybe the parents that are helping them make decisions. You know, if you were on the ground looking for one of these types of insurance products, you know, how do you look for it? You know, because they're, it's sort of opaque. I know they're, they're offered within institutions, but how do you find it? How do you know if it's there? Do you have any tips for that? Yeah, the, the entire industry of sort of protecting your investment in higher ed is relatively nascent, right? Again, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't need to protect it the same way. The risks weren't the same. So it's not very clear. It's not very opaque. Frankly, you know, when we sell it to a school, it's a tool in their toolkit mm-hmm. and it only works when they market it, when they tell you, right? So the best thing, the best advice I would give to parents is to ask when you're on that school visit, that campus visit, when you're talking to a college, is the degree going to be guaranteed? Is there some insurance? How do I give me the confidence that this is going to work? And I need more than, well, trust us, it worked for other people, right? It worked a generation ago. It worked for you and you in here, dad. So of course it's going to work for your legacy child. Well, it's not the same now. And one of the, that is a challenge in higher ed is that we project our own experience, which is often a generation removed from what the experience kids are having today. So I would ask, I would, I would say, because I, I wouldn't, <laughs> you should not in any scenario, borrow 10 times your net worth and put it all on Amazon stock or Bitcoin or whatever it is you believe in. And we all believe in higher ed and it works, but you still shouldn't do it. It's still a crazy type of investment to make with no hedge. And so you should ask, hey, how, wh- how am I going to hedge this? What's my protection? What happens if it doesn't work, right? Especially what happens if it doesn't work through no fault of my own, right? He graduates, he, he or she, like they, they finish their degree. They got good grades. They do what they're supposed to. It's a bad economy. And if they shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know, that's on you. I'd look at a different school. Sure. And who are you asking that question, Wade? Is that the financial aid office, admissions? Yeah, when I'm, you know, my oldest is 11, but I can definitely see myself five years from now, you know, visiting some campuses with my son and saying, okay, like asking that question. So on the campus tour, the financial aid office, like when I got an acceptance letter and here's your packet, like, was it in it? Did they tell me I have a guarantee? If they didn't, they don't have it. Because if they had it, they would want to tell me this. They'd be excited. It'll help me go there, right? So I'm looking for it. I'm asking it. And the more that, that people begin to defend their economic risk this way, the more they say, like, I know college is likely worth it on average, but for me, I need to protect myself. Then the more colleges are going to go, oh, we're going to need to address this, right? And more colleges will sign up for it. And I think that is going to be good for society generally. I agree with you, Wade. And I also think that's a great point to end our conversation on today. So thank you so much for being here. Really grateful for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.